Revelation chapter 14 tonight. Revelation chapter 14. Yeah, I'll help you. At the end. Revelation chapter 14. Everybody have a study guide that needs one, hopefully? All right, awesome. Okay, so we're supposed to do this last week and didn't have service with all the, the storms and the bad weather. Things were starting to get better by Wednesday, so we just put it off a week. Um, so pray, pray for me tonight, partly because, not that I'm not ready, but I've got three different messages because I'm trying to work ahead in this series, so I've got three different messages in my mind. So hopefully I don't jump to chapter 16 tonight instead of chapter 14. And as we were just praying over there again, my wonderful son prayed to God asking his dad to stop speaking so long. (laughs) Not going to happen. I mean, it's like pray that dad would stop explaining everything and only just explain one thing. Three messages. See? <laughs> if you only knew. If you only knew, Nate. All right. Revelation chapter 14. Uh, let's go ahead and read this tonight. We'll read uh, through a few verses tonight. We're not going to read all of them, but we will obviously study all of them. But let me just read a couple verses and we'll kind of jump into it tonight. And I looked and lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Sion, <clears throat> and with him 144,000 having his father's name written in their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of a great thunder. And I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps. And they sung, as it were, a new song before the throne and before the four beasts and the elders. And no man can learn that song but the 144,000. This was specifically geared towards them, which were redeemed from the earth. These are they which are not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. These were the redeemed from among men, being the first fruits unto God and to the Lamb. There's an old song, which I'm sure many of us know, we've heard before. Uh, it's called the Battle Hymn of the Republic. How many know that song? A lot of times we sing it um, in, in churches or you sing it just in general around, you know, patriotic type days. Uh, that song is widely praised and heavily criticized. And the, the reason is for some of the wording in the song. It starts out, Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. Now, this song was very representative of the Civil War, being apocalyptic. Many thought that this was the apocalypse and this was the end times. And peace and harmony were not that far away. But this idea of God trampling out sinners in wrath is not a very popular idea today. A lot of people don't like to view God as that, and the main reason is because of our improper and irreverent view of God. People say things like, God has no right to judge sinners. He has no right to pour out his wrath on some and not on others. And the reason, again, we say these things is because most of us don't really understand who God is. We, we want God to just endlessly bless us, but then we can't even fathom of God that would, you know, judge certain people. 
I'm saying all this because there's a specific reason. Uh, back in around 2013, uh, the Presbyterian Church, the denomination as a whole, they voted to refuse a very popular Christian hymn by Keith and Chris Getty, which is the song we sang tonight. It was a song, In Christ Alone. I love that song. I think it's a great song. But they voted as a denomination, I think it was like 9 to 6 in their vote on their board, to not include that hymn because they felt that hymn was offensive to people. Here's why. It's that verse, third verse I think that we sang, uh, till on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. They didn't like the view of God being a God of wrath. But when you study your Bible, you see that that is one facet of God. So that church as a whole was saying, you know what? We don't agree with that side of God, but that's biblical. And there's a lot of denominations, there's a lot of quote-unquote Christians out there today that really would like to discount a lot of the Bible. And really it's because we want to be in charge. So they preferred to change the line to say this. Instead of till on the cross when Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied, they wanted to change to say this. They preferred to say, when on the cross as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified, which is true. His love was magnified, but at the same time, it, it kind of takes part of some doctrine and, and kind of twists it. Now, this idea of wrath offends many modern views. God's love is so overwhelming. It's so full and encompassing, but it's not a complete picture of the God of the universe. To disregard the idea of God's wrath is to disregard God himself. And the idea of wrath is thoroughly biblical. Uh, Psalm chapter 94, turn quickly there, uh, just kind of a reference point. Psalm chapter 94, just the first two verses. There are several passages of scripture that refer to this. Uh, Romans 12 talks about this, but uh, Psalm 94, 1 and 2. Uh, most of us know this verse or these verses. Sometimes we misquote them. Uh, but it says, O Lord God, to whom vengeance belongeth, O God, to whom vengeance belongeth, show thyself. Lift up thyself, thou judge of the earth. Again, talking about God's character. Render a reward to the proud. So this verse, this passage, tells us that the Lord our God is a God of vengeance. And really what we learn from other scriptures is that who does vengeance belong to? Most of us know this answer, yes, God and God alone. Paul reiterates those words in Romans chapter 12 by telling us that vengeance only belongs to God and he alone has the right to repay it. Now, we try to repay vengeance when someone does us wrong, right? We do that all the time. Now, the psalmist was praying a prayer asking God to repay the proud for what they deserve. And throughout history, there have been many saints, many Christians that have been praying and asking God to finally pay back those prideful individuals for what they deserve. And the reason I'm saying this is because in chapter 14, this is in a uh, kind of a interlude from chapter 10 to chapter 14, 15-ish. It's kind of a, um, a parenthesis, a, a pause, if you will. It's an interlude between the second set of judgments and the final set of judgments, which is the bold judgment. And again, what we see in chapter 14 is that God is finally going to answer that prayer. And this text stands in amazing contrast to chapter 13, which we looked at a few weeks ago. Chapter 13 was about the rise of that pseudo-trinity, the, the beast from the sea and the beast from the earth, the Antichrist, the false prophet, that great dragon. But what we see is that God, again, it alone is sovereign, which means he is in control. 
His program of righteousness will eventually defeat evil. The wicked will be judged. The righteous will be blessed. And in verse number one, what we see, and I looked, again, John looked and see, he sees this vision. And I looked and I saw a lamb that stood on Mount Zion, Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 having the Father's name written in their foreheads. Now before I get that first point, we have to understand, uh, it's kind of a preview of upcoming attractions. And the application here is very poignant. The one you follow is crucial. And the one you worship is decisive. And there are many people that worship the lamb, the true lamb. But there are many others that worship the lamb, or not the lamb, but the devil, that great dragon. And what we see, first of all, in chapter 14, the first few verses is this. Faithful followers of Jesus have a glorious future. Faithful followers of Jesus have a glorious future. One of the themes that link Revelation 14 through 16 together is a word expressed 11 times, and it's the word voice. What we see is that there is the, the voice of this 144,000 that we, we hear. And the first thing we see about them is this. Verse number one, they will stand securely. They will stand securely. They are standing on Mount Zion or Mount Zion with none other than Jesus Christ. These followers of Christ are dependent on God. They are loyal to God, owned by God, safe and secure in God. And many believe this is the heavenly Mount Zion mentioned in Hebrews chapter 12. But again, there's no way to know for sure. Again, there's a lot of speculation when you study the book of Revelation. And you can easily point to certain things or you can make a, uh, you, you, you can easily make a case that you, you can believe certain things or, or what you think it is. But again, some of it is not meant to just debate. It's meant to us to have a, a main understanding of who God is, who Jesus is, and what he's going to do in the end times. But the reign of terror from the, the terrible three is passing away. Their doom is certain. Look at verse number two. There's that, that word voice. And I heard a voice from heaven as the voice of many waters. Just imagine this. I mean, 144,000 people singing out. It's going to thunder. I mean, it wouldn't it? You know, it'd be like going to, you know, the, you know, the Texas Stadium, whatever it's called, where, where the Cowboys play. I mean, who knows how many fit, fit there, 70, 80, 90,000. And just everyone, you know, I mean, everyone screams and cheers, but just everyone's singing. I mean, it's, it's pretty loud, but 144,000, it's just, it's booming. So John hears this voice from heaven. It's the voice of many waters and as the voice of a great thunder. And I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps. So what we see here is not only do they stand securely with Christ on Mount Zion, but they will sing loudly. This isn't just the sound of one, but of many. And they sang a new song. And in the Old Testament, singing a new song was representative of praise for something that God has done. And it's worth noting that a new song is not necessarily a song in time, talking about chronos, but one fresh with a new, kainos, it's a different Greek word. And it's a response to our understanding that this application is for us as well. When we worship the Lord, any song can be a new song if our hearts are right with God. Any song could be a new song. If our hearts are right with God, we can reveal his worth, declare his praise, no matter if it's an old song or a new song. But really, this should inevitably lead us to a fresh perspective of praise. Look at verse number three. And they sung, as it were, a new song before the throne and before the four beasts, which we've already talked about in chapter four and five, and the elders. 
and no man could learn that song but the 144,000. This is specifically designed and geared for them, the ones that were on the earth and that were really messengers of God, as we talked about in previous chapters, which were redeemed, taken up from the earth. And again, this is very, very significant. God had purchased them from earth for a special ministry during the tribulation. And the principle is this, special faithfulness in the present world leads to special reward in a future kingdom. You see, our faith has always been a singing faith and will continue for all of eternity. That's, you know, there's several reasons why we sing before a lot of times we preach or give a lesson, but it's because our faith should be sung about. We should sing and give praise of all that God has done. And again, I'm not trying to just beat a dead horse with this, but there's a lot of times when you look out and people just don't even want to sing at all. But we have so much to praise God for. So much to, to give God glory and honor and majesty. And whether you, you like the song or not, if it's a song of, of doctrine, a song of worship, sing out to God. Sing out in praise for all that he has done. We continue on, verses 4 and 5. We see that they, these 144,000, not only are they going to stand, uh, they're going to sing, but they're going to be sanctified completely. Verses 4 and 5. These, there are two characteristics that stand out about these. Look at verse number 4. These are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. These were the redeemed from among men, being the firstfruits unto God and to the Lamb, and in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. So a couple things that stand out quickly is this. They are morally pure, and they are the firstfruits of God's saving work. Their purity is evident from the description where it says they have not defiled themselves with women. And the fact that there was no lie found in them. While they were on earth at this time, there was a specific job, a specific purpose. And their purpose was to share the gospel, to proclaim the goodness of God, to try to really be a witness, to evangelize the lost during this time. And that's what they were there to do. And this tells us that they are blameless before the Lamb. They have been ambassadors of truth and enemies of falsehood. And, I, and again, it's just an amazing thing how they live. The application point is this. Jesus is truly glorified in us when we are fully and totally satisfied in him. Our identity is in him, and really that's all we should need. Now, it's not saying you, you shouldn't be married and this and that, but... Again, it's just an amazing thing that stands out that they weren't focused on some of these secondary things. Their main focus was the gospel. That was it, plain and simple. Their main focus wasn't on, uh, let's go out with our buddies and let's drink, let's have a good time, let's, let's tell dirty jokes. That wasn't their focus. While they were on this earth, their focus was God. Their focus was the gospel. Their focus was trying to tell as many people as they could because they knew where their identity was found. And again, just these that were redeemed, they were, they were morally pure, they were blameless, there was no guile in them, for they were without fault before the throne of God. We continue on, verse number 6, we see this, that God will be just in his treatment of all people. God is a God of judgment, but he's also a very just God. He is a very fair God, and there's a lot of people, and we'll look at this in the next couple of weeks, that you know, really don't think that God is a very fair God. How, how can he be fair if he's going to destroy the world? Well, what I see over and over, I've studied this book several times, and what I see over and over is that God gives every opportunity for people to be saved. 
every opportunity. And yet, so many people just say, you know what? I don't want that. I don't need that. And even in the end times, even in the tribulation, this seven years, he's still giving them opportunity to repent, to turn from their sins, to be saved. But finally, enough is enough. Their hearts have hardened. Their hearts have turned against him. They're not going to listen. But beginning in verse number six, look what it says. And I saw another angel. We've seen a lot of angels flying in the midst of heaven that are messengers of God proclaiming what he wants them to proclaim. I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel. Now, this is very interesting. Having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth and to every nation and kindred and tongue of people. Back in, or in beginning of verse number six, we're introduced to six angelic messengers. We see it in verse six, verse eight, verse nine, 15, 17, and 18. And their message is that of an eternal gospel. Now, here's the interesting thing. During this present age, angels are not privileged to share the gospel. That privilege is to us. But here at the end, they have the opportunity to share the gospel, to preach the gospel. You know, God often uses us as his instruments to share the gospel, and that's why we should continue to share the gospel. But up to the first half of the tribulation, now this all changes, and God will use angels to fly around and proclaim his goodness and share this eternal gospel. And it's the same message that has been pronounced throughout history. It tells the world that a day of reckoning is coming, that there is a day of judgment that is coming, and we will all be treated the same though we will not be treated, or though we will all be treated justly and righteously, or sorry, we will not all be treated the same, because if you accept Christ as your Savior, there is a reward, but if you refuse Christ, there is a punishment. And what we see here, continue in verse 6 and 7, I'm kind of flying through, there's just a lot. All peoples, all kindred, tongues, nations, whatever you want to say, all peoples are called to fear, glorify, and worship their Creator. Again, as it says at the end of verse number 6, as they're sharing that everlasting gospel to every nation and kindred and tongue and people. So again, it's, well, I never heard. Well, you can't say that at the end times. Everyone will have heard. Everyone will have heard of who Jesus is and the message of his amazing gospel and what he has done. Verse number seven, saying with a loud voice. This isn't, well, I, I couldn't hear. You know, some of us have a hard time hearing. I mean, I do sometimes. Brother Mike does sometimes. Some of us have a hard time hearing. But everyone will hear this message. Saying with a loud voice, Fear God. Give glory to God. For the hour of his judgment is come. And worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountain of water. So all people are called to fear, to glorify, to worship God, their creator. Why? Because God is a sovereign Lord. And therefore, we should fear him. Complete awe and reverence are his rightful due. God is an awesome judge. Therefore, we should give him glory. You know, the text says the hour of judgment has come. The time of salvation is almost gone. The opportunity to receive Christ is fading away. And that's why as, as a pastor, and I know many other pastors and missionaries and preachers and evangelists are trying to do their best to help their congregation realize this, to realize that the time is short. We don't know how long we have. You know, we, we live life like we think we have unlimited time. And there's unlimited time. You know, I'll, I'll tell my friends later. I'll, I'll share the gospel later. When I get older, I'll start living for God. We don't know how long we have. 
all of us understand that because we have all experienced death in some form or fashion within our family, within friends. We know that, that time is short. So we have to be vigilant about uh, and diligent about the work that God has given us to do. And really, as we're seeing here, and what we'll see in a couple weeks, Armageddon is fast approaching. It's just around the corner. The second coming of Christ could happen at any moment, and we see this in chapter 19. God is sovereign. He is, he is the awesome judge. He is the marvelous creator. Therefore, that's why we worship him. Romans 1 and 2, and I know my wife and many of our conversations, she has alluded to these passages, but they remind us of, of all of this because of this general revelation that no one has an excuse. No one should have an excuse. Well, I've never heard. Here at the end, everyone will have heard. In nature, God has made himself known to all persons, both in creation and in conscience. We continue on, verses 8 through 11. Unbelievers can anticipate defeat, can anticipate defeat, wrath, and eternal torment. Sorry, I said that wrong. Unbelievers can anticipate defeat, wrath, and eternal torment. Look at verse number 8, if you would. And there followed another angel, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. Now, we're going to reference this more in weeks to come in our Habakkuk series. That's who we've been talking about, right? We've been talking about Habakkuk, or Habakkuk. We've been talking about Habakkuk, yes. We've been talking about Babylon, the actual nation. And really, what we're going to see this coming week as we finish out chapter 2, and we'll look at into chapter 3, that Habakkuk couldn't understand, God, why, why won't you judge this wicked, evil, treacherous nation? And God was about to explain to Habakkuk, as we'll, as we'll see this Sunday, that, hey, their time is coming. Judgment is coming to them. And we have to understand that God's timing is different than our time. But God will judge. He will avenge his own. And what Babylon referring to here, it's not necessarily the, uh, the empire of Babylon, but it's really the world system that is against Christ. And what we see here as this second angel is appearing, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Really, it's the system that is anti-God. And really, really, we're seeing that even in our own country today, that there are those that are for God, are for Christ. There are those that are against God. And really, they are a part of that Babylonian system. And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, if any man worship the beast and the image and receive his mark, that mark that we talked about, the 666 in their forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God. So they're putting it out very clearly for all to hear, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels, in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever. And they have no rest day and night who worship the beast and his image and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. Now, you know, I've heard of some that, you know, just think, you know, the afterlife is just going to be a great big party. The ones that have never received Christ, oh, it's, you know, it's not a big deal. I'm just going to be partying with my friends. No, you're not. The Bible is pretty clear on that. It's a place of torment. It's a place of excruciating pain and agony of uh, we'll, we'll reference this later, but I mean, hell, a lake of fire, also it's a bottomless pit. I mean, think about it. You can't even fathom 
a bottomless pit. You can't. Because you start falling, eventually you're going to hit something. But imagine falling forever and ever and ever. But the second angel is saying that Babylon is falling. And this is the first official reference to Babylon in Revelation. And the full description of it, what we'll talk about, is in chapter 17 and 18. Now, ancient Babylon is in Mesopotamia, or modern-day Iraq. It had been a political, commercial, and religious powerhouse. It was once a great empire known for its decadence, its gross immorality and idolatry. Kind of reminds me of America in some ways, honestly. But in Revelation, Babylon refers to the world system that stands religiously, politically, and economically in opposition to all that God is. It's the system that opposes Jesus, his church, and all who are saved. And this proclamation of the angel is of that system, of which the beast is the head, as we talked about in chapter 12 and 13. They are doomed. Babylon is fallen. And, and, and really think about this. If Babylon is fallen, and so too is the beast. <laughs> and the system that has overcome the world, indeed, is short-lived. It's not going to last forever. And this is the final warning to turn from the world and turn towards the Creator. And we've already read verses 10 and 11, but it's a terrifying picture of hell. Again, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out. Verse 11, and the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever. It's not going to end. And they have no rest day and night who worship the beast in his image and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. John MacArthur notes about this passage. He says, It is impossible to read these verses and come up with any kind of doctrine of universalism, uh, um, conditional immorality. The picture is one of conscious, eternal, and everlasting torment before the angels of the Lamb. Those in hell will have a constant awareness of what they did, of who God is, of the God that they rejected. And this will only enhance the horror and torment they experience. Fire and brimstone are often used in Scripture with respect to divine judgment, and God used it to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, and a lot of things that we see in Revelation are kind of culmination of everything we see in the Old Testament. But it's, it's a horrifying picture is what we're seeing here. But we continue on, verse 12 and 13. Believers then are then called to endure, to obey, so that they will be rewarded. Look what it says in verse 12. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and, and faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Write, Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit that may rest from their labors and their works to follow them. You know, it's, it's very easy to wonder, is our devotion to the Lamb truly worth it? I think sometimes people might ask that question in some form or fashion. Is my devotion to Jesus really going to pay off? Is it really worth everything that I'm doing? Well, verse 13, it's a, it's a resounding yes. And John hears the voice from heaven telling him to write, and really this is the second, really second set of, or second beatitude within Revelation. There are seven beatitudes. And this little phrase, those who, um, uh, those who die in the Lord are blessed. It's truly remarkable. It's a truly remarkable statement, but can only be understood, listen, when we take this passage as a whole. Because imagine if the passage here in verse 13 said, write, down, write, 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 write these words down. Blessed are the dead. Imagine we just stop right there. I mean, like, it makes no sense. Blessed are the dead? Why, why are they blessed? 
But the verse continues, blessed are the dead, why? Which die in the Lord. That's the whole part. So when we add the phrase who die in the Lord, changes everything and it takes on a new perspective that their life wasn't in vain. The life that they lived on earth wasn't in vain, that there is a reward waiting for them. And what we see finally, lastly, in the first or last six or seven verses is this. Jesus will pour out wrath and righteous judgment. Jesus will pour out wrath and righteous judgment. In these remaining seven verses, John sees an end-time harvest. Look what it says in verse 14. And I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and upon the cloud one sat like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of heaven, crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, thrust in thy sickle and reap. For the time is come for thee to reap. For the harvest of the earth is ripe. It's a very interesting picture here. And what we see in these first few verses, verse 14 through 16, is this. The judgment will be in glory and on time. I'll explain it. John sees this son of man in a white cloud with a golden victor's crown on his head. Who is this? Anybody? Who is the son of man? Jesus. Jesus is the son of man. And his whole description is very similar to Daniel's prophecy of the Messiah's second coming. When he says in Daniel 7, verse 13 and 14, that the Son of Man is coming. It's, it's a messianic title of Jesus Christ. And in his hand is a sharp sickle, kind of that they used for reaping harvest back in the day. This is a harvesting tool with a razor-sharp curved steel iron blade and a wooden handle. It's almost the picture we get of the Grim Reaper, Right? It has that sickle in his hand. And the sickle, really, it symbolizes swift judgment that is approaching. Verse number 16, it says, And he that, hath, um, he that sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth, earth was reaped. So imagine, you know, you take a sickle and, you know, you're, you're cutting down the, the harvest, or, you know, you have a tractor and you're, you're mowing it down. Imagine the imagery here, just wiping out the rest of the ungodly. That's the picture we see here. Because, really, the time has come. And we'll see this in chapter 15, really more in 16, when we start the bold judgments, the vile judgments, because that's the end. That's the end of it all. God has given every opportunity to repent, to be saved, and yet people still refuse. And really, uh, verse 16 is kind of a, it's a picture of the divine terminator. That's what you look at it as. That's what I do, at least. The divine terminator has come. Judgment day has arrived, and in God's final wrath, it will come via the Lamb. Now, verse 17 through 20 are very eye-opening when you look at it. This judgment will be universal and horrific. And another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel out from the altar, which had power over fire, and cried with a loud voice, to him that had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in thy sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. Treading grapes in a wine press was a very familiar uh, metaphor that the Israelites would understand. 
But it was also a very familiar picture of divine wrath and judgment. I want to read a couple verses and kind of paraphrase just for sake of time. But Isaiah 63 says this, that I trampled the winepress alone and no one from the nations was with me. I trampled them in my anger and ground them underfoot in my fury. Their blood spattered my garments. All my clothes were stained for I planned the day of vengeance and the year of my redemption came. Lamentation 1 says that the Lord has rejected all the mighty men within me. He has summoned an army against to, to crush his young warriors. The Lord has trampled the daughter of Judah like grapes in a wine press. Joel chapter 3, it says, swing the sickle because the harvest is ripe. So this imagery, what I'm saying, points back to a lot of imagery that was found in scriptures. And I want you to, I want you to understand this, this kind of this picture of trampling out the, the wine press is, you know, all I can think of in my mind is that, you know, I love Lucy episode where she's, you know, in the, in the, the wine press and, you know, everything. Um, but you, you think about that. In the great wine press of the wrath of God, and the wine press was trodden with, without the city. Now, we've seen some amazing devastation, some terrible destruction, not just in our own generation, but in past generations. You think of like World War I, World War II, think of the Civil War. There's been a lot of death, right? A lot of destruction. World War I was, at the time, known as the war to end all wars, and then came World War II, which has served as, up till this point, the deadliest war in history. And I, and I read there's an estimated 56.4 million people that died from World War II. And that's just astounding when you think about it. Could even be more. Yet the war to end all wars was not World War I, World War II. It's Armageddon that is coming. It's going to take place in the plain of Esdralon near Mount Megiddo. It's also known as Armageddon, located 60 miles north of Jerusalem. We'll get to this in chapter 16 a little bit, but also in chapter 19. But really, I want you to understand, sometimes we say it's, it's the battle of Armageddon. This isn't a battle. I mean, this is utter destruction. Because a battle, you think of, there might be casualty on both sides. There's only going to be casualty on one side. And it's the side that is against Jesus Christ. And again, we'll touch on this as it comes to it in just a few weeks. But early historian Josephus tells us that, this is interesting, when Jerusalem was destroyed in AD 70 by Roman general Titus, he killed so many Jews that the whole city ran with the blood so much that the fire of many houses were quenched from the blood. But when the angel swings his sickle, it's not even going to compare to that. Look at verse 20 again. And the winepress was trodden without the city, and blood came out of the winepress, even unto the horse bridles, by the space of a thousand six hundred furlongs. And this is, it, it's insane, it's impressive when you think about it. This winepress that has been trampled outside the city, this blood is going to flow out of the press, rising as high as a horse's bridle, which is roughly about four feet high. And the 1,600 furlongs equals about 184 miles. Just picture that. I mean, we, many of us have been to a river. Imagine a true river of blood, four feet high. How, how far is Austin from here? Probably a little farther than that. Uh, Austin is roughly 264 miles. 
Okay, so probably like maybe Colleen or something like that. I mean, just imagine that. From here to Colleen. Probably more like Waco. Waco. 184 miles. I mean, that's, that's insane. That's terrifying. And that's what's going to happen. This 184 mile long, four feet high river of blood. It's the approximate distance of the Valley of Edom where this final battle is going to take place. And Warren Wearsby notes of this. He says, today God is speaking to a world in grace, and yet people will not listen. But one day he will and must speak in wrath. This bitter cup will be drunk. The harvest of sin will be reaped. The vine of the earth will be cut down and finally cast into this wine press. And that's the imagery that John is giving us here. And here's the key truth as we close out chapter 14 and Really, as we get into chapter 15, I'm, I'm already done with that lesson, and we got 16. I'm halfway done with that one, too. Uh, it, it's just an amazing study of what's coming and, the, and these seven judgments that are, that are about to take place, these really terrifying judgments, really don't even compare to the other two sets. But here's the key truth of everything that we've looked at tonight. When the Lamb returns, the enemies of Christ will be eternally punished while eternal rest and reward our promise for those who have put their faith in Jesus. The world is going to be judged, but if you have trusted in Jesus, there is rest and there is a reward. Vindication is finally going to be served. Again, for centuries, for thousands of years, mankind has been crying out to God to avenge the death of the saints. And, and there are many, many great wars and battles that have been fought where Christians have just been annihilated for their faith. God is heard. He hasn't cast it aside, but he works all things in his time for his purpose. And finally, enough is enough. But again, what we have to realize is that God will reward the faithful. And we see that from 144,000, those that didn't defile themselves, that were morally pure, that had no guile within them, that they spoke the truth. And really, there's application that can be applied to us that we should do everything we can to be morally pure. We should do everything we can to have no guile found in us, but some of us, like, I could care less. It's my life. I'm going to live it the way I want to live it, but that's the wrong view. As long as we're on this earth, we have to live it for God. We have to declare the gospel. We have to, to, to share every, every opportunity we get with the world that is lost, that is dying, that is in need of a Savior. And again, I, I beg, I plead with you, I plead with myself to to take this seriously, to realize that God has placed us here for a reason, and if we are saved, as I have mentioned so many times, he has commissioned us. And we are meant to, even as my podcast, the title, to live on mission, to do what God has called us to do. So again, I just want to encourage you, not just tonight, but going forward, to, to take this under wraps and, and take this to, to heart, to, to realize that I have a job to do. I have a purpose to do. And my purpose is to live on mission the way that God intended me to live, to do what he has called me to do. Yeah, Revelation can be scary and it can be terrifying when you think of some of the imagery. But for the Christian, it should evoke hope that we don't have to go through that. But I need to do my job to tell and share with as many people as I possibly can so they wouldn't have to go through this or endure this and this hardship. Let's pray.